Thank you very much, Fred. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for turning up today to listen to this conversation we're about to have on how to do MTBF testing. And of course, MTBF stands for mean time between failure. And mean time between failure is something which is often construed as a number that represents reliability goodness. But in practice, it has some shortfalls, which you will go through in, in due course in today's conversation. Now, most of my webinars, what I try to do is I try to make them sort of a uh, self-contained ecosystem. And that means that I don't, I try to at least tend uh, to shy away from having uh, topics which aren't explained fully um, and where there is something we need to go over. I try to explain that topic or concept at least in part in the webinar. And in getting ready for today's webinar, I just realized that just couldn't, that's just not possible. I couldn't do that. The reason being is because we need to do understand um, distributions like the Poisson distribution and the chi-squared distribution. And those are webinars in their own right. So, so uh, up front, I want us to be very, very clear about this. Today's conversation is about going through the steps, but the reality is if you want to be a master at uh, some of the things we're talking about, you do need to go and look at some of our other webinars or articles on Ascendo to look at and understand what the Poisson distribution, for example, is all about. But hopefully um, today you will get something out of how to do MTBF testing or how to plan for it at the very least. And many, one of the many reasons we are required to do MTBF testing is because we often have nagging requirements like this, that we have to do this thing called reliability demonstration testing. Now, demonstration is a term which sounds beautifully succinct and simple and, and uh, a very basic concept, and it sounds very pure. Why wouldn't you want to... Uh, demonstrate that something can be done before you purchase it or deploy it or use it or accept it. Um, but, uh, but that gets in the way, that doesn't get in the way, sorry, that is a problematic term when it comes to reliability. How do you demonstrate, for example, that a nuclear power plant is going to last decades without it failing catastrophically? And so this whole concept of demonstration is actually really challenging, perhaps even are flawed in terms of how we define it in the world of reliability. And the other thing about demonstration testing is that in a way, it takes us away from the confidence we develop when we have, for example, done lots of, well, done a really robust familiar or fault tree analysis or halt regime, whatever the best approach to uh, baking reliability into your first design is, we might have spent a lot of time implementing corrective actions that were identified very, very early to understand the very vital few uh, ways our thing is going to fail. We might have even conducted accelerated life testing on the dominant failure mechanisms, i.e. not test everything. We just worked out if our thing is going to fail, how it will fail, and conducted accelerated life testing where we perhaps increased the temperature or stresses to turn a, a uh, six-year test into perhaps a couple of weeks. And that all those activities are really useful because that's how we generate confidence that our thing is reliable. And it is the most wonderful form of confidence we can have in the world of reliability engineering. It's that innate understanding that we have built a reliable product. 
it's the wonderful level of confidence that many organizations never get to achieve because they are focused on this concept called demonstration and none of that stuff classifies as demonstration. We often have, especially very bureaucratic or, um, or uh, corporate organizations who uh, have a lot of people in charge who do not understand reliability or do not understand engineering at all. And so they replace their lack of knowledge with processes of which demonstration testing falls neatly within. It's very easy to put into a calendar or a schedule, uh, we will do demonstration testing here because I don't want to have to think about or, or subjectively assess the reliability of something. I'd like to have it unambiguously demonstrated as being reliable. But of course, how do we demonstrate that a nuclear power plant that's supposed to last for decades without failing is reliable? And that might seem like an absurd uh, an example, but I'll put it to you this way. Many of the warranty periods we, we demand from things we buy, of things we buy from electronic consumer, electronic uh, product manufacturers, for example, it's in, the, it's in the order of years. Vehicles, it's in the order of years. We have warranty periods where we expect a very few, small fraction of things to fail within a period of one, two, three, sometimes five, sometimes 10 years. And to demonstrate reliability means that you need to technically test that entire product for one, two, five, 10 years to demonstrate that those things will last that long. But of course, by the time you've done that, your, uh, your opportunity to impact the market has long since disappeared. And it's very important to note that reliability and quality are measures of your product. But confidence is a measure of you. So I know that I'm not setting the scene in a very um, in, in a very proactive way for or making you want to hope, uh, want, making you motivated to do NTBF testing, uh, demonstration testing, which is essentially this is, because there are lots of other ways you can generate confidence that your thing is as reliable as it needs to be. Uh, we, if we, uh, we often test to generate confidence about something, but confidence can look very different from, uh, from uh, look very different from, from, uh, sorry, two very different people. And many organizations never do reliability demonstration testing or MTBF demonstration testing. And these organizations are amongst the most reliable in the world per se, in that they produce components and products which everyone knows through experience are very reliable. They don't, I don't do demonstration testing. How can this be? Well, it's because they generate confidence through other means. So let's start with the MTBF, which is one of Fred's favorite metrics when it comes to reliability-ish metrics. And one of the many scenarios where we need to or we feel compelled to get some understanding of the MTBF is for scenarios like this one where we have a military customer and if you want to talk about bureaucracy and process and militaries are leading the way uh, they want to demonstrate that this vehicle has an MTBF that exceeds some sort of preordained requirement and MTBF stands for mean time between failure now if your product is not repairable, then you're often talking about the mean time to failure, MTTF, which is 
conceptually similar enough to the MTBFM mean time between failure, where essentially it's a measure of how long your the average duration of how long your thing lasts before it fails and you repair it or replace it. Now, when we do an MTBF test, we usually have a number of these sorts of products, number of these sorts of vehicles, and we just drive them and we uh, look at the odometer whenever something bad happens. And that allows us to create charts that look a little bit like this, where on the horizontal axis, we have test duration. On the vertical axis, we have the number of failures. And we are able to track on what we call this cumulative failure chart how our thing is going in the field. And the idea is that if we have lots of failures and our chart will have a very steep slope, which means we have a, a, a lower MTBF, which is bad because we, things are failing more often. If, that's, if our data points or if our test um, points show that we have a, a shallower slope, which means we have a higher MTBF, which is better because things are failing less frequently. So our test in a very, very basic way means we start with our vehicle and it drives and we observe failure after failure after failure after failure until our test says we need to stop. Now we plot these data points on our cumulative failure chart like so. And you can see that in this chart, our vehicle was driven for uh, about, 70, let's say, 1,000 miles, and we had 80 failures. And that may, might mean that in this case, our best guess at the MTBF is 0 0.8679. If that's, uh, so 0 0.8679, thousand failures, a, th a thousand miles, I should say, or whatever the, 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 uh, the metric is on the horizontal axis. Now, this is not a bad way of estimating the MTVF. Now, remember, if our thing is more reliable, as it fails less often, then it's going to have a lower MTVF, which means those data points, are, uh, uh, sorry, if, if our thing is uh, less reliable, it's going to fail more often, lower MTVF, and therefore those blue, those blue data points will create a steeper line if our thing is more reliable, it will tend to have a high MTBF and those data points will create a shallower line. So we can use these data points and the more data we have, the more confident we are in our point estimate of our MTBF. But of course, confidence is a measure of you, not a measure of our product or system. And in fact, our confidence from a statistical perspective, if we want to put all the engineering stuff aside, if we want to forget everything we did during the design and manufacturing process, if we want to forget all the wonderful or perhaps terrible initiatives we did or did not implement when it came to making our thing last for a long, long time, we can just revert back to statistics. Now, statistics will give us this little beautiful curve here, which is what's called our confidence curve. And this tells us, um, based on statistics, what our best guess at MTBF is, along with the confidence that it is any other value close to our best guess. You can see that um, we have what looks like a bell curve on a sort of angle to sort of try and represent the likelihood of us, of the true MTBF being lower than our best guess and all the true MTBF being higher than our best guess. 
And so this is where demonstration testing really kicks in. Demonstration testing, even though it doesn't say this in the name, in the, in the industry that is reliability engineering, we tend to, uh, we're almost required to forget that we have any previous data. And so we have to rely exclusively on statistics and that confidence curve that we've got right here, which is generated using equations and calculators and uh, um, probability distributions that geniuses who are, who are of years gone by have come up with and allow us to um, allow allow us to create this curve here. So that's one way of interpreting an MTBF test. We haven't we have a best guess, but we're not super can't say we're absolutely certain that the MTBF is exactly 0 0.86679. So we'll say that the MTBF is approximately 0 0.86679. You can see you have the wavy equal signs, which is how we represent approximations. Um, but of course, we, when it comes to demonstration tests, usually uh, at the behest of a, of a process zealot, uh, we often need to specify what our confidence is. So we can see the shape represents how we characterize a confidence, but we often say things, well, I want to be 99% confident that the MTBF is greater than a certain value. And what you can see here is that we have a gray line which goes through our confidence curve our, that's uh, such that only 1% of the area is above that gray line. If that gray line was allowed to extend through and cut our confidence curve into two shapes. You can see with the overwhelming majority of that shape will be beneath that gray line and a tiny little fraction, in this case, 1% of the total area will be above that gray line. And that gray line is uh, gives us an MTBF, which is lower than the best guess. And the reason why is because in this instance, for whatever reason, we want to be 99% confident that the true MTBF is greater than some number. The reason why is that if we have a requirement, we might want to say, well, we need to conduct a test that shows that we are 99% confident that the true MTBF is greater than a certain value. So although this test can tell us that our best guess might be 0.8679, it also tells us from a statistical perspective, we are 99% confident, however, that it's actually greater than 0 0.6715. Our best guess is higher, but we're 99% confident that it's at least greater than 0 0.6715. And so this is how we often need to sort of break down our preconceived ideas about randomness and, and, and um, trying to measure things exactly because we always have to take into consideration that reliability can never be truly measured. So let's look at this additional test that we just ran, and you might not have, you might not be able to see it because it's such a small little test. In this in this case, we ran a test which went for a lot, a lot less, um, a lot less than um, the other one, which is about the vicinity of seventy. Uh, but we can see here that we have, I think, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, maybe 11 failures observed over a test duration of what appears to be about 15, whatever the, the units are. 
And in this case, even though we have a much smaller test duration, uh, we still always can get an, an estimate of the MTBF, which in this case is 1.3528. So the MTBF for this test, this additional vehicle or, or competitor's vehicle, let's just say, uh, is approximately zero, uh, it's approximately 1.3528. But it just so happens that this weird looking confidence curve, yes, and that is the confidence curve there. The top one on, or the one on the top right looks more like the bell curve that we know and love, but the one on the bottom left, that's what it looks like. It's a little bit like a bell curve, but it's a weird looking bell. But it just so happens that this much shorter test also has a 99% lower confident bound, confidence bound in the MTBF of 0.6715. Now, of course, now all our heads are swimming with statistics and, and whatnot and saying, why is this dude torturing me with all these different numbers and wiggly equations, uh, wiggly equal signs and everything else? But the main point we want, to, want you to take away from this chart is that every test we run can give us a best guess. However, uh, we, can, we, can only ever, um, we can only ever work out uh, a 99% lower confidence bound, uh, or sorry, a lower confidence bound if we want to specify a certain number. So I see a question, how do you calculate 0.8679? Should MTBF be in hours, days instead of a ratio? Uh, that is true, but the MTBF is mean time between failures. So, uh, so for example, one way of looking at the mean time between failure is that it, it we it, uh, a product will last seven years per failure. So it is in a way a ratio, notwithstanding it is often expressed as a single metric analogous to time. And that can be a little bit confusing, but if you always remember that it is how many hours, kilometers, days, weeks, your thing lasts per failure, then it always brings us back to the reality that the MTBF is essentially the slope of our cumulative failure chart. So we don't want to get too too wrapped around the axles with whether it's a rate or a, or a or just a simple um, a simple um, uh, a metric that represents time or duration. It's you're perfectly it's it's perfectly okay to look at the mean time between failure and express it in terms of the units of time only. But for all intents and purposes, the mean time between failure is how long something lasts per failure. If you look at another way of looking at that is that uh, the MTBF is the inverse of the hazard or the failure rate. The failure rate is how many failures per unit time. So it is a rate in a way, even though it's not wrong to express it in terms of a simple duration metric. So when it comes to that lower confidence bound, that is the MTBF specification we have in documents from um, organizations uh, that... Um, uh, that sort of demand MTBF demonstration testing. Now, if you look at that very short test where we only had 11 or so failures, our best guess at MTBF from that test turned, about, turned out to be twice as high as our lower confidence bound. That longer duration test, was uh, the best guess is only 1.29 times higher. And so... What this means is that essentially the longer duration test gave us the same confidence, even though it appeared as if that vehicle or product has a lower MTBF. Why is that? Why is it the case? 
because the longer you have, longer you test something, the more confidence you have or less uncertainty you have in the best guess. So the best guess can be a lot closer to a requirement and you, be, you still have a certain level of confidence that it exceeds the requirement. So the longer you test, the, the uh, lower the reliability, the lower the MTBF can possibly be for that product to have a reasonable chance of passing the test. If you have a shorter duration test, that thing needs to be super reliable to make sure that lower confidence found exceeds the requirement. And this is one of the many issues with demonstration testing. If you want to reduce test duration, you need to have something which exceeds the requirement by a hell of a lot. Otherwise, you'd be testing for a long time and it all comes down to the risk you are willing to take. So let's go into some of the more um, boring technical stuff associated with this conversation. So let's go back to our general service vehicle, which is an armored vehicle that uh, is now forming the backbone of many militaries across the world. And let's just say that the requirement for the MTBF and the documentation, the contracts, the specification is that the general service vehicle shall have an MTBF of no less than 1,000 kilometers demonstrated with an 80% level of confidence. So what that means is that this 1,000 kilometers now becomes that lower confidence bound. And as opposed to us having to guess what that confidence is, we are already told that we have to have an 80% level of confidence. Now, this tells us that there is still a risk that of us passing an unreliable, unreliable vehicle. And that's what we call the consumer's risk. So there's a 20% chance that a vehicle that passes our test associated with this requirement is not going to meet the MTBF. Now, many people who see this absurd requirement, this absurd uh, specification, which includes a level of confidence, go, that's crazy. We, we need to be 100% confident that our thing exceeds the MTBF we require. The problem with that is you can never be 100% confident because failure is a frustrating random process. And it's still it's uh, statistically possible, no matter how improbable, that a really unreliable product can on that day perform very, very, very well. In the same way, it's, also, it's always statistically possible for a very reliable product to uh, almost inexplicably have 10 failures in the first minute. Those scenarios might be unlikely, but they're still possible, which is why it's never, never possible at all to have, um, uh, to have a 100% uh, confidence. Galena asks, does the MTBF assume a constant hazard rate all along the expected life? That's a fantastic question. I'm going to get back to it towards the end of this uh, conversation. So how do we start planning an MTBF test? We've been given a requirement, which means for this our general service vehicle, where we need to have a lower confidence bound of 1,000 kilometers between failure with a, a level of confidence of 80%. We start planning by assuming zero allowable failures. And that means we, we ask ourselves, well, how long do we need to test for if our vehicle has zero failures? So if our thing doesn't fail after driving several thousand kilometers, how long does that need to be before we reach our level of confidence that uh, we, we can essentially conclude that we're 80% confident that the MTVF is greater than 1,000 kilometers? Well, this is where we need to go into the world of statistics and math and stuff like that. This is where we introduce this horrible equation here with this 
got uh, this uh, Greek letter called chi down there, which is a chi-squared random variable. We have this T up here, the total usage or test duration, and R represents the total number of failures we experience in a test that goes for a duration capital T. So for example, if we drive this vehicle for 3,419 kilometers, then capital T becomes 3,419. If we experience zero failures and R becomes zero, and this chi-squared random variable will allow us to will be able to give us the lower confidence bound based on that test duration. But remember, we haven't, we're planning a test. So we don't have the test duration yet. We have the lower confidence bound. So we can rearrange the equation to give us a test duration in terms of our chi-squared random variable, which we can incorporate our confidence into uh, by using this horrible equation here. And it's in the guidebook as well. There is the Excel formula that can make all this go away, so to speak. But like Fred and I say, and a lot of other people say too, uh, it's just putting a formula and numbers into a spreadsheet without understanding what they mean is very, very dangerous. So I'd urge anyone who's going to use this in vain to, uh, to uh, try and learn a little bit about the chi-squared distribution before they press enter. But notwithstanding, that is how we calculate how long we need to drive to essentially ensure that we are 80% confident with zero failures that our vehicle exceeds the requirement of 1,000 kilometers mean time between failure. And when we do this, we get 1,609.4 kilometers. So that is how we do this uh, for a, a, a hypothetical plan a hypothetical test for experience zero failures. So let's create a test plan. We want to demonstrate 1,000 kilometers with 80% confidence. Now, here is what the numbers look like when I uh, enter this into an MTBF test planner that I do that I that I provide for other courses. We have a requirement of 1,000 level of confidence of 80%. And what you guys can do is you can verify that these numbers are correct using that equation. You can see that on the previous uh, slides, we worked out for zero allowable failures, the test duration was 1,609 kilometers. When we change it to one failure, it goes to 2,994, two failures, 4,279, so on, uh, so on and so forth. So here we have seven test plans one for each number of allowable failures from zero through to six, where you can see that if we, for example, drive our vehicle 9,075 kilometers, we need to make sure we have six or fewer failures for it to um, meet the requirement. But this doesn't make our thing easy to pass. We need to incorporate producers' risk, especially um, uh, and one of the main reasons is because especially if we have a, what we call a zero failure test, those tests, those zero failure tests are extraordinarily um, uh, difficult to pass. We looked at the very start of this conversation, how that short test and that cumulative failure uh, chart, that one, uh, we had to, that, that vehicle demonstrated the same lower confidence bound as the first vehicle, but it had because the test was so short, the best guess at the MTBF was twice as high as the requirement. So I'm going to introduce this term called the discrimination ratio. 
Show of hands in the attendees, who has ever heard of the discrimination ratio before? Who has heard of that? We've got one, two. Discrimination ratio. Awesome. Now, discrimination ratio is one of the most, I don't know, so misleading terms or definitions a statistician has ever come up with. Essentially, the discrimination ratio tells us how much, how many times better or how many times more reliable our thing needs to be to have a reasonable chance of passing the test. And so let's just say we have a uh, discrimination ratio of two. Let's just pick a number of two. It has to be greater than one because uh, if the discrimination ratio is one, it implies that our actual product will have, this, have the same reliability as the, as the, as the uh, requirement itself. But for when it comes to MTBF, the discrimination ratio of two implies that we're going to assume that the, the vehicle that is provided to us by the manufacturer has an MTBF of 2,000 kilometers between failure, twice as high as that requirement. That is a bit of a hard or bitter pill to swallow for many of these organizations who simply wave their hand and say, let's demonstrate reliability through a test. It is borderline impossible to have a reasonable chance of passing a test if your vehicle, your product is uh, only just exceeds the requirement, just exceeds the lower confidence band. And so one of the first things we need to do is essentially double the assumed reliability of a vehicle or a product in order to create a test that's not going to last centuries or millennia. This is often not understood by the manufacturers. So they might be given a thousand kilometer mean time between failure requirement, but if the test plan is based on this discrimination ratio, technically they're supposed to be aiming for a 2000 kilometer mean time between failure to ensure they have a better than average chance of passing that test. And so discrimination ratio is how we describe how much more reliable our thing needs to be. So if the MTBF requirement or target is 1,000 kilometers and a discrimination ratio of two means that the thing that we're testing needs to have a 2,000 kilometer mean time between failure. Again, not very well understood. And it's one of the things that gets a lot of projects into trouble. So the height of that green column is two times the height of the column associated with the requirement or the target. And that's where the discrimination ratio comes in. Uh, maybe a better factor is what we should call it. So that is one of the first issues you have with any sort of reliability demonstration testing. To have a reasonable chance of passing, you need to make something which is often twice as reliable as the requirement. Now, the discrimination ratio is an arbitrary choice. Uh, it, the industry sort of norms in this space are 1.5, 2, and 3. You can choose, you typically choose 1.5, 2, and or 3. Now, if you, if you choose a discrimination ratio of 3, for example, that means the MTBF of this general service vehicle is assumed to be 3,000 kilometers where your requirement is 1,000. Why would you do that? Well, the more reliable something is, the less time you need to spend testing it. The challenge with that is 
that might be very difficult for your manufacturer or contractor to achieve. And so you always need to balance that. You need to balance the test duration with the reasonableness of the demands you're placing on your contractor. So I've seen many organizations just look at the numbers and say, oh, you know what, I can, I can choose a discrimination ratio of three, my test duration goes down, fantastic. I will just choose a discrimination ratio of three, awesome. That just saves months and millions of dollars of testing. The problem is that might now be just flat out unfeasible for the uh, or infeasible for the contractor or the manufacturer to now achieve. And so although that sounds really good on paper, uh, everyone loses when the contractor cannot produce a vehicle that passes that test that uh, is assuming a discrimination ratio of three. So let's go back to our general service vehicle, which is often tested in this way. We now, remember, we had a bunch of tests where we, we worked out well, if it has zero failures, it needs to drive 1,600 kilometers. If it has six failures, it needs to have been up driven for 9,075 or whatever the right number was. But uh, we now need to work out how hard it will be for a general service vehicle, which has an actual MTBF of 2,000 kilometers to pass any one of those test regimes we came up with. So we assume that it has an actual MTBF of 2,000 kilometers, which is two times the requirement. Remembering that two is the thing called the discrimination ratio. What is the probability of this thing having more than zero failures over, for example, 1,609.4 kilometers? Now, this is where an understanding of this thing called the Poisson distribution is really useful. Now, here is the equation on the screen again. I'm not a huge fan of just throwing equations people people's way without people understanding it. So if you are going to use this equation, I really urge you to learn more about the, um, uh, the Poisson distribution. Um, we just don't want to have a numbers in, numbers out approach to any sort of test planning. But if you use this equation where you can see that in the equation in Excel, R represents the number of failures we've observed. T represents a test duration. DR represents the discrimination ratio. MTBF is uh, with the subscript REQ represents the MTBF requirement. True just tells Excel that we're interested in this thing called the CDF. And that gives us the probability of us having zero failure. So you need to subtract it all away from one. Long story short, when Excel has finished turning its gears, it will give us a number of 55.3%. What does that mean? That is what we call the producer's risk. It means that even if this general service vehicle, which has a 2,000 kilometer MTBF, i.e. twice the requirement, it will have at bet, uh, it will have a 55.3% chance of failing a test where we insist that it is driven for 1,609 kilometers with zero failures. Now, that is what we call the producer's risk or the risk of failing a reliable vehicle. So consumer's risk is the, the risk of us accepting an unreliable vehicle, and the producer's risk is a risk of us rejecting a reliable vehicle. Now, many organizations I talk to who are customers in this space often say, well, we don't care about the producer's risk. I mean, we're all the consumer. We're the consumer. We only care 
if we uh, incorrectly accept a um, an unreliable vehicle, the producer's risk, that's their risk. Now, that's a very short-sighted uh, idea because everyone shares the risk. I mean, the aim is for the uh, the aim is for us to uh, uh, combine with our contractor, our suppliers, and manufacturers to create a vehicle or a product which is reliable. So, if we if we uh, create a test where the producer's risk is so high that virtually no one can give us can get through, then everyone loses. We don't get our vehicle. We don't get our product. So, it's very important to understand what the producer's risk is and that we need to take that into consideration. So if we go back to uh, if, we, if we go back to that equation, then we can do things like uh, complete the following complete a table like this where we for every possible combination of discrimination ratios, we can look at the probability of passing a test with zero allowable failures with that equation there and that's in the guide that equation is in the guidebook for you guys to have fun with but when you do that you'll be able to see okay the discrimination ratio will really change what we call the producer's risk for each uh for each possible combination now my computer needs to kick in as well so you can see that if we have a discrimination ratio for example of uh three our producer's risk goes down. So it's obviously a lot much easier for a more reliable vehicle to pass a test. But of course, that is problematic for a consumer, sorry, for a contractor or manufacturer. Uh, obviously making things even more reliable is very, very difficult. So the probability of us failing the test is on the right-hand side of that little table. But as a rule, those producers' risks are way too high. And so one way of reducing the uncertainty or the risk is to get more information. So that's where we um, we get we gather more information by observing more failures. And so we can use that equation, that, those equations we came up with to one, cal uh, calculate the test duration and the producer's risk for a test where we have zero failures. So on the left-hand side, we start with zero failures, use that first equation that I gave you to calculate the test duration, and then use a second equation to work out the probability of us passing that test once we've assumed a discrimination ratio. This is, so this is all for a discrimination ratio of two. There's a couple of questions coming up, so I will address them in due time. So what we do is now we can say, let's just look at or explore the number of reliable failures increasing to one. Well, the test duration increases, but the producer's risk goes down. So it's still relatively high. It's still a 44% chance of a product with a 2000 kilometer mean time between failure failing the test. But you can see it is heading in the right direction in terms of reducing risk. We allow two, we have two allowable failures, producer's risk goes down to 36%. Three allowable failures, it's down to below 30%. So we can keep going, we can keep making our tests longer and longer and allow more and more failures to reduce a producer's risk. But of course, when do we stop? As a rule, we stop when the producer's risk is less than or equal to the consumer's risk. She might remember in this case was 
So what we've done here is we've gone through and, and created all these possible, all these test uh, regimes for different allowable failures. You can see that a test regime where we have six allowable failures, a duration of 9,075 kilometers is the first test where the producer's risk drops below 20%. So as a rule, this is where we say, uh, this is where we, where we stop things and say, this is the test plan we're going to use with a risk of 20%. And this is what our cumulative chart uh, failure chart looks like. So this is based on an MTBF test plan that I use in the MTBF courses I, 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 I run. And you can see we have the number of failures in the vertical axis. We have the test duration, the horizontal axis. And when we gave the computer essentially the requirement of 1,000 kilometers, consumer's risk of 20%, and a discrimination ratio of two, you can see that we have this green line on the right-hand side, which represents test success. Uh, we stop after six failures because that was the test duration based on, um, uh, based on, I suppose, industry norms that we keep testing until the producer's risk, the discrimination ratio we picked is below the consumer's risk. And so that red line at the top represents the, uh, the, the number of maximum number of allowable failures we can have. So if our, if our test plan, if our, our cumulative failure chart data, that the data points creates a line which crosses that red line at the top, our thing has failed the test. And so that means that let's just say we have a number of vehicles and we test them and our cumulative failure chart looks like this. In this case, you can see we have had two failures um, once the vehicles have driven 4,279 kilometers in total. So as soon as it touches that green line, we stop. We have passed if we touch this line. We will fail, like I said, as soon as we cross that red line. As soon as we cross that red line, we've had seven failures before 9,075 kilometers. So we have failed. And the reason why we want to have these sort of early failure, uh, early failure criteria is that we don't want to keep testing unnecessarily. So the green line on the right-hand side, we often see um, test plans, which are simply uh, rectangles, uh, where we have, should go back actually, where instead of it being, um, instead of it having this nice smooth green line on the right-hand side, let me get my stylus out and have some fun. You often see in textbooks and other places, um, uh, you'll, you'll see test plans which look like a rectangle. So let me let me see if I can change some colors here as well. Come on, ink color. So you'll have a green line is about to come very soon. You often see test planes where it's, it doesn't have a smooth pass uh, line. It's just a, a line which goes straight down from the right-hand side. And that's because um, back in the day, these calculations were relatively hard to do or evaluate, I should say, without Excel at our fingertips. And so we often simply used tables to allow us to quickly get that top right-hand corner of our, uh, of our test plan. 
and we just drew a line straight all the way down. So that meant that even if you had uh, experiencing zero failure, you still had to drive 9,075 kilometers to pass a test. Whereas statistically, we can uh, terminate that test much earlier if we um, are able to calculate the pass criteria of every single uh, possible number of failures. So that's one of the key differences between let's call it historical, um, historical uh, test regimes. Now, in the, uh, in the same uh, application I, I provide my students for my course, we're able also able to essentially work out when it is highly unlikely for a vehicle or product which has already failed a lot to pass a test. We can say, all right, let's just say, um, uh, let's, let's just say we want to stop the test when we've had so many early failures, we know that this thing's all highly confident that our thing's not going to pass the test. Of course, that allows us to create this red line on the left-hand side where uh, essentially we stop testing if we experience a large number of early failures. We fail if we touch that line and we want to essentially not waste test resources. And so this is another way of saving resources when our thing is certainly, well, not certainly, but almost certainly not going to fail. We have early failure, early termination criteria. Um, and so that is something which we can calculate by essentially dropping the confidence to a very, very low level. Again, outside the scale of this conversation, hopefully you're starting to think about how you, if you need to, can uh, create MTVF tests that are able to um, save resources, but give you something meaningful. Now, one of the key takeaways from this is that, uh, that we, we now have a, a test plan that which consists of red and green lines that we can, we can use or we can produce before we start testing our vehicles. One of the reasons we want to create sort of these sorts of uh, charts or these sorts of plans before we start testing is because once we start testing, that's where these things called emotions tend to start uh, taking over. And when that happens, we start trying to perhaps uh, test against hope and we'll say, well, we've, ha we've had five fags in the first meter, let's keep testing and see what happens. Or we, um, when we have those early phases, we might try and find ways of saying, well, that doesn't count. That's, an, that's a manufacturing or defect-related quality control issue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If we get in the habit of creating test plans, which are sort of locked in stone, for lack of a better term, before we start testing, it allows us to be less emotional when we uh, are dealing with, especially with scenarios where we're experiencing more fires than we'd like. Now, uh, Carl asks the sequential reliability test calculator. Now, essentially, I'm not going to, again, I don't have the time to go into that in great detail, but let me bust, bust my stylus out again. Uh, a lot of traditional reliability test plans, like I mentioned in the past, uh, sorry, like I mentioned previously, are simply boxes, whereas opposed to us having this sort of corridor which allows these early tests, these early terminations, we simply have these, oh, we simply have boxes. Oh, come on. Come on, computer. Oh, I've lost everything. Give me one second while I uh, while I get my screen back up. The level of amateurism in these in this webinar is embarrassing. 
So let me reshare this screen. Okay. Let's see if I can uh, recover. So you see a lot of test plans, like I mentioned, without these sort of curvy lines, you'll have one big green line over there, and then you'll have one big red line going across the top. Now these, there's these, these test plans or these textbooks which give us this thing called sequential reliability tests or probability or, or, or uh, probabilistic reliable, uh, reliable, sequential reliability tests. And essentially all these things do is create, instead of a box like that, they create um, a truncated box where we have corner taken off over here and a corner taken off over there. Now, I know this is looking very, very untidy right now, but these lines I've just drawn, again, represent these PRSTs, uh, these sort of sequential, sequential reliability test calculators. And the idea is that they, the uh, people wanted to uh, not test unnecessarily. So there was an attempt to try and take these corners off. And the idea is the corner, we look at this sort of uh, little corner down here, which was taken off our test planning uh, rectangle, that was there to try and terminate our test early once if our, we, we had a product which is having very few failures. So you can see that uh, if we had zip very few failures that our thing could perceive, uh, uh, conceivably uh, uh, pass the test at around 7,000 kilometers. And, vice, and the same thing applies to this corner up here. We have this thin corner cut off where it allowed us to terminate the test early if we had a large number of early failures. Problem with that, that uh, these uh, sort of um, uh, corners being cut off is that they're not based on statistics. They're not, they're sort of um, based on, let's call it rules, rules of thumb. Although they appear to be quite formally derived, they're not. The only way you, the only approach you can, the only way you can, uh, invoke statistics in terms of early termination is to have a reliability test plan which has these smooth pass lines and these smooth uh, fail lines on the each side because that's they're based on uh, calculating upper and lower confidence bounds for a certain number of failures so those sequential reliability tests can be useful um, because they'll help you pass early or fail early but they're not based on statistics. I see Carl Wright has also written that Poisson distributions are discrete and the simplest statistical process where Poisson events are random in time, which describes a stable average rate of occurrence of counted events. Poisson is frequently used as a first approximation to describe failures expect with any with, with time. Any thoughts? And I will address, I'll give you my thoughts. And in the same time, uh, address that question that uh, was asked earlier, which I will find very shortly. Where is that question or that comment? Uh, was it from Galena or Jelena? Sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. Does this MTBF assume constant hazard rates along all expected life? The Poisson distribution assumes that these things fail at a constant rate. We know 
that that is highly unlikely to be true. But in the world of demonstration testing, where there is this, uh, there is this um, desire to at least appear objective when you're testing, we are often forced to assume a constant hazard rate, i.e. it's not wearing in or it's not wearing out, as almost a sort of um, defendable compromise between wear in versus wear out. We're not allowed when it comes to demonstration testing at the MTBF to actually work out if we have wear in or if we have wear out or the inter-failure period is not exponentially distributed or if it doesn't have a constant hazard rate. Now that said, if your vehicle is not aging, if its failure characteristics are staying relatively constant over the whole test, then once we have a large number of failures, as a rule, if you have more than 30 failures, then you're, then, um, then sort of the, the approximation is really, really good. Um, the Poisson distribution will then approximate the number of failures you expect to see after a test duration where you expect to see 30 failures. But of course, when we're doing demonstration testing, I haven't seen too many demonstration tests where we have the resources to do more than six or seven or eight or nine failures. Now, of course, that's not, that's not a consistent thing, but it's one of the many shortcomings with demonstration testing is that the, the equations that textbook after textbook after textbooks demand us to use when we're planning a test assume a constant hazard rate. Again, for this perceived defendable notion of objectivity. Now, the reality is uh, that process, uh, process zealots who want us to have a schedule for testing, they want us to say, well, how long do we need to test to ensure the MTBF is greater than 1,000 kilometers? Well, before we start testing that vehicle, we don't know what its failure rate characteristics look like. And so we sort of forced to use these equations without ever coming circling back and making sure that the assumptions are correct. So there's lots of issues with MTBF testing along when it comes to the statistics where we have to make tons of assumptions that not many people really understand, um, including when it comes to discrimination ratio. Discrimination ratio is news to most people I speak to who have allegedly done uh, MTBF test planning in the past, i.e. the idea that we are not planning a test for something that meets the requirement. We are planning a test for something that exceeds the requirement by a factor as, as large as three. Um, Carl also asks, it sounds like a judgment call on how much testing is needed. Any thoughts? Absolutely, it's, it is a judgment call. Uh, the problem with, again, with demonstration testing is that it's typically constrained to organizations which are very corporate or bureaucratic. And so there is this, it, there's this uh, issue where we come up with a plan and that gets locked in stone. We're never allowed to revise that plan. We're never allowed to go look, go and look at the actual failure rate or the hazard rate of the vehicle in question. We're not actually um, uh, we're not actually allowed to sort of review um, the discrimination ratio. So let's just say, what if the vehicle is on track to pass if the vehicle is allowed to be tested for a longer duration? Well. In a way, these organizations who demand demonstration testing that sort of make it culturally very difficult for that conversation to be had because you'll have the program manager look at the reliability engineer and said, but you told me I only need to drive this thing 9,075 kilometers. And that's where uh, the reliability engineer 
tries to explain, look, you gave me confidence boundaries. You, you got a one in five. You told me there's a one in five chance that uh, you're, you're willing to, to accept a one in five chance of us accepting an unreliable vehicle. Therefore, we have a one in five chance of a reliable vehicle failing the test. Let's have a nuanced conversation about what this means. And as soon as that program manager hears anything to do with statistics, uh, his or her eyes roll the back of his, his or her head, blame the reliability engineer, slam the desk and walk out. And then we have uh, contracts at 10 paces trying to work out if that thing failed or not. Uh, Carl also mentioned the Statistics 101 webinar might be helpful. Yeah, I, I agree with that, except that a webinar um, for a for statistics in general is probably too short a period of time. I would argue though, Carl, that uh, we have a, a, the webinars that we have provided when combined are giving us a bit of Statistics 101. We have, for example, a webinar done on the bell curve and viral and what the mean is and what the mean is not. So maybe in uh, in, in title, um, uh, the, the webinars themselves are combining to create a, a Statistics 101. But if there's any particular topic you think that we need to focus on more than anything else, Carl, feel free to rec uh, recommend that to myself and or Fred. Um, let me see if there's any more questions or comments. I don't But ladies and gentlemen, so what you have received is a very down and dirty introduction to MTBF testing. And what I haven't even touched upon is whether MTBF is the right metric to use. There are lots of other webinars that um, I have alluded to where we actually talk about what the MTBF is and what the MTBF is not. MTBF is, MTBF is not reliability. I was actually teaching a course last week where we, one of my students who was working on a, let's just call on, on a on a uh, on a device, let's call it device, which had a very long uh, lifespan. It's supposed to last fifty years. And so, what did they do? And she said, "Well, what we need to do, obviously, was to uh, specify a failure rate of one over fifty, i.e., one uh, one failure per fifty years. So, a failure rate of one over fifty implies that the mean time to failure is going to be fifty years. And anyone who's done one of my one of my other webinars regarding the MTBF." Well, know that that means that there's a 50 to 80% chance of that device not, not lasting um, to the mean, the 50 year mean that the failure rate implies. And it's, we have time and time again, uh, incidents like this where we think we know what the, st the statistics are um, and we just throw a failure rate requirement or an MTBF requirement, so to speak, and assume that everything's going to be okay. But unfortunately, if you don't understand the metric well, you're going to essentially bake failure into your design. Um, how do you ask? So we learned how to do MTBF not and how not to do MTBF. Yeah. <laughs> in the in the um yes, you did. And I'll, I'll, what we won't. What I won't. What will never happen. I should say is we'll never eradic eradicate the need rightly or wrongly, to do MTBF demonstration testing. What I would love for you guys to do, especially those who do need to do it, is just understand the pitfalls. And when you understand the pitfalls, you can help the decision makers make better decisions, even though the MTBF is often not the best metric to use. Um, 
Galena asked, do I do web webinars on reliability testing? I do webinars, I do courses, and Fred's answering that in the, in the comments as well. Um, if you have any specific requests, feel free to throw them um, my, my way. Of course, webinars are really good uh, uh, media for one hour conversations. But of course, hopefully you can realize that today, um, there probably wasn't much scope for any more information being thrown your way. And even and uh, you, there are people who, who, have, who would never have done this before who now need to go away and learn about this thing called the chi-squared distribution, the Poisson distribution and things like that which is not a criticism by the way, because these things are uh, sophisticated concepts which take more than one hour to digest. But if you got any ideas for webinars, we do run courses as well. Please feel free to reach out. Uh, Peter writes, would testing to six failures be equi equivalent to testing six non-repairable units? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, if that non But don't forget, we're assuming a constant failure rate. Um, if by chance there was a a, 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 a a constant failure rate, that's cool. Now, if you look at, uh, Peter, if you had six non-repairable units you wanted to test and you wanted to be really, really uh, on top of the MTBF, one of them, hands down, the best way to do that is to do something like Weibull analysis where we actually not just assume a failure rate, we try and fit a distribution to the data we have. And when you do that, you get a much more accurate estimate of the MTBF and the confidence bounds are much tighter. And so when you do that, um, you need to test fewer units because there's so much more confidence you uh, sort of throw into the statistics through Weibull analysis where you actually fit a distribution to the data and so that simple act of not using uh, this very basic MTBF approach that we just went through today, but instead we use Weibull analysis allows you to do far, far less testing you otherwise would need to. I'm more than happy to speak offline about that, but we do have webinars on what, what how to do Weibull analysis and we uh, do have courses as well. Uh, hopefully I answered that question. I'll let me know. If I didn't, Carl asked, that's a statement. So it's all about risk, agreed, concur. Uh, and he also said, thank you, thank you. How is it related to mill standard 718 sequential tests? Can I consider them basically one? Um, Jing Song, so I, I believe you're, ask, you're essentially um, asking me if what we went through today uh, is equivalent to mill standard 718 sequential tests. Yes and no. So mill standard 718 will always will essentially give you the same stop point in the top right hand corner of the uh, of your test plan. So let me uh, let me just uh, go back to one of my slides where hopefully I still have the ink. So. Mill standards uh, seven eight or this the, let's call it a textbook um, the, the textbook uh, approaches which are also featured heavily in mill, mill standards they will often give you uh, let me give a pen not a, not a they will often give you try and change color to distinguish it geez I'm on fire today 
they'll often give you the same upper right hand point for lack of a better term they'll give, if you have an, an mtbf requirement of a thousand kilometers consumers risk is 20 percent that will they will usually give you the same number for the top right hand corner it's what happens thereafter um they will not give you the uh sort of smooth past um the the smooth right hand right hand uh past line over here this uh just get my laser point out. They will not give you this smooth early termination for early passing of the test. They will also not give you early termination criteria. That's where uh, they will talk about that PRST, where we just essentially um, cut off the corners, where we chop that one off there. And with our red one, chop this this up off up here without us having those sort of more statistically correct lines where we can have those early termination and early failures. So um, I will say that they're, I wouldn't say they're basically one based on those differences. They have the same underlying um, uh, assumptions that yes, it has a constant hazard rate, we'll use a chi-squared this, we'll use discrimination ratios that, will use um, uh, Poisson distributions to calculate the, the producer's risk. So they, they're based on the same underlying theory. They give us the same top right-hand corner, but they don't give us the more, let's just say, sophisticated test plans where you can terminate really early um, if you have a really, really reliable product. If that doesn't answer the question, um, please let me know and I'll have another go. Okay. How do you judge or know random failures or wear out ones in a test? That's a really good question, Jing Song. And one of the things that you'd be looking for is I'm going to go back. Uh, one of the really simple things you can look for is if we have our cumulative failure uh, chart like this, if you start to see, uh, for example, the failures doing the, the blue data points instead of creating a relatively straight line. But if they start to create a trace out a line which gets steeper and steeper and steeper and steeper, that suggests that your vehicle or your product is aging. Um, and if you, if you see that, that immediately invalidates the assumptions we are using for this test. And so technically all the, all the numbers that are spit out at the end uh, mean nothing. Uh, so that's one very basic way of identifying if your product or, or vehicle is wearing out earlier than it should. If that doesn't answer the question, uh, Jing Song, uh, let me know um, and I'll have another go. You'll often also see, sometimes uh, you'll see scenarios where we have uh, the, uh, let, me, let me erase that one, or you'll see uh, the curve actually go very very start very very steep and then sort of go down a bit and then it starts to go up again these are those you might have some infant mortality failures down here um but again that, that that's not unusual but you need to bear that in mind um if you see that technically that too invalidates your test because uh you, you are you're trying to test the entire lifespan of a of a device of a system and something's changing 
So you just need to always, um, always look at these uh, these charts with uh, with a keen eye. This is for those of you who are aware of it. This is often called the mean cumulative function. Well, not function chart because the idea is a function is is supposed to uh, be the smooth line that the data points would follow if you had a million data points. Uh, yeah, as Fred mentioned, um, the MCF in the, in the comments. But that's these are some ways of visually identifying if you're having wear in or wear out. Uh, Jing Song then um, then points out that sequential tests are not accelerated, meaning they're very long, so it's hard to know. Actually, that's one thing I really forgot to mention. Technically, well, sorry, not technically, but the industry sees demonstration testing as testing at operational conditions where we don't accelerate. Not allowed to accelerate. It has to be at use conditions. And so in the same if you go back to that example I mentioned at the start of the webinar where we need to demonstrate that a nuclear power plant's not going to fail within 50 years, technically in the world of demonstration testing, as it is currently um, understood, you need to build a nuclear power plant and test it for 50 years in operational conditions. Otherwise, it's not demonstration testing. So accelerated life testing is a much more useful mechanism for understanding things because not only is it accelerated, which is always good, but usually if there's something goes wrong, accelerated life testing gives you time to change your design to make your thing more reliable. Remember, uh, measuring reliable reliability can be important, but it's not nearly as important as making your thing reliable in the first place. So yes, yeah, so I share with your uh, share your your uh, assessment, Jing Song. Carl writes, so it seems that about the level of risk and the amount of the amount of money expended are all tied into reliability assessment. I, I would I would concur with that. I'd also bring us back to those organizations who actually do FAMIRS or fault tree analyses or HALT or have really mature reliability culture who just continually hunt those vital few weak points from day one. And so they build confidence that their thing is reliable, not from statistics, but from actually going through the process of continually hunting the weak points of their system and having those fast, simple, free corrective actions, which, and they become fast, simple, free if they are incorporated before your first design. And yes, that is possible. Earlier, you have come up with these ideas that cheaper and simpler they are to incorporate. Um, so, if you want to assess reliability through that uh, using confidence based on engineering knowledge and manufacturing knowledge, firstly, that sort of level of confidence feels so much better anyway, but it's always cheaper. If you want to use statistics, that's when you start paying through the nose. And oh, and by the way, if something fails demonstration testing, there's usually no time or money to do anything about it. Um, Andre wrote, there has been some studies showing that the chi-square just produces two conservative results and instead you should use the gamma distribution. I tried it and noticed the bigger difference when the numbers of failures is low. What do I think about that? I concur uh, with what you're saying, but I understand that the gamma is, but here's the thing, and I know we're going down a statistical rabbit warren. Technically, the chi-square distribution is a particular form of the gamma distribution. And technically the equations I gave you today are all based on the gamma distribution. The reason why is the gamma distribution is a di distribution of the time to failure of a system based on the sequential number of things failing exponentially. What does that mean? Let's just say that a system fails 
after four components have failed where component one works and then it fails and component two starts being used and then it fails and component three starts being used and then it fails and component four starts being used and then it fails. Um, the, if every one of those times to failure for those individual components is exponentially distributed, i.e. has a hazard rate, a constant hazard rate, then you have a gamma distribution. So all these equations are based on the gamma distribution. Um, the gamma distribution has two parameters, the hazard rate essentially of, uh, of, the, um, of each one of these components and the number of components. It just so happens that the chi-square distribution um, is, a, is a particular form of the gamma distribution where we're able to essentially filter out one of those parameters. And for that reason, the chi-square distribution appears in textbooks because it only has one uh, only has one parameter. And those chi-squared uh, distributions often had tables at the back of textbooks. And realistically, there's no other reason for chi-square distribution being used in these equations beyond that. It's just the old school textbooks tend to be more, more, more likely to have chi-square distribution tables. So the chi-square distribution is actually derived because the statistics tells us that a gamma distribution needs to be used and the chi-square distribution is a particular case of the gamma distribution, which is more likely to have tables at the back of textbooks. So in practice, the chi-square distribution is the gamma distribution. So I'm not entirely sure where the difference is coming from, more than happy to speak about that offline. But if you want to do the math and you want to do, do, do the derivation, and I've done that derivation myself, you start with the gamma distribution and it turns out to be a particular case or chi-square distribution turns out to be a particular case of the gamma. Oh, I've got another question. I know we're going over time. If I know people are dropping off. I should say, uh, um, yeah, no worries, Rashad. I should say before I keep answering the questions, I'm more than happy to answer the questions. Thank you for your time today. Um, feel free to reach out to me and Fred if you have any questions or any suggestions about future webinars. Again, hopefully you take away some of the deeper learning points about the MTVF and, it's, and how we test for it. And, it, and like I said, if there's any, any doubts, please reach out. Um, Carl. Carl writes that our job is to separate problems and failures that require relief from those where we need to prevent occurrence in the future to help separate these. Ask ourselves a few questions. What is the current actual impact of the problem? What is the potential impact of the problem that is not solved? What level of risk can we live with that is supported from a moral, legal, contractual viewpoint? What is an acceptable outcome that balances risk, costs, and benefits? I'd agree with that. And uh, I don't want to talk about it too long because we'll be here for at least another hour. And I think there are some webinars we, that I know Fred does plenty of those as well, where we sort of talk about that without being able to give us um, give us the answer as well. And, and Carl goes on to write about how RCA is not a single well-defined method. Uh, I, I concur with what your comments that RCA are, but the, at the risk of uh, us starting a brand new webinar on a different con uh, concept, I might just leave that one right there and just hopefully acknowledge, uh, will confirm, sorry, concur with you that RCA can mean all things to all people. And RCA in my book isn't completed until you've done a, incorporated a corrective action. You're not just analyzing a problem, is admiring a problem. We want to actually fix problems as well. Andre, 
told me that he will send me the article and I'll have a look at that and we'll see how we go. See if we can understand where the difference comes from. Any more questions?